0: This morning we have a guest speaker, and so I'm going to open and set the intention by leading us in a prayer. So will you join me together? Perhaps take a deep breath. Allow your heart to be open, your mind to be still, to be here in this present moment, this wonderful moment. Breathe out, all is well. So I know that this morning is a morning filled with grace. A morning where each cell is touched by the healing presence of spirit that is always within us. That the light of love, luminosity, generosity is present within us as a conscious awareness. And so I... Hold in such gratitude this center, this teaching, this community, you, you and I when we come together with one heart, with a bigger idea of who and what we are and what our life is here for. And so with that said, I release this prayer to the heart of the universe, knowing highest good for each one of us, healing presence for each one of us, love joy and peace know that with me as together we say and so it is i'm so excited to hear this speaker and i've been listening to her friday night and all day saturday and i'm just still in love with her message she's an author she's a renowned scientist who's a fellow in the american association for the advancement of science she has had a long and respected career as a research cell biologist and she's a master healer who has combined science and the energy of healing. She is here this morning to help us reach into new levels of mental and spiritual health through the use of cell level healing. Please give a very warm welcome to Dr. Joyce Hawkes.
1: And thank you for the wonderful welcome here and the team that has helped put the workshops together. Hope to see some of you this afternoon for our final little piece of work. It's been a wonderful time in Edmonton. I brought my UGG boots along because my daughter made me buy them. And I tried to use them yesterday, but the snow didn't stick. So when we talk about cells, If you think about your body and you look at it, you can't see a cell. But there's a hundred trillion of them in you. If you're six feet tall, a little bit shorter, a few less. But a hundred trillion, that's a thousand times more cells in each one of you than all the stars in any of the galaxies we know. And something like 1,500 times more cells in one of you than the entire population of the Earth. Isn't it astonishing that they get along so well in there? (laughs) Now, if you pluck one of those cells, and you go, well, what makes up that cell? Well, let's see, there's carbon mixed with other things, oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen, making molecules that make membranes, that make muscle, that make various things, and then you take those molecules apart, pull the carbon apart and look just at it. The carbon has electrons. In the center, it has a proton with particles. And the deeper you look in it, pretty soon you find empty space. But is it really empty? Is that void nothing? Is that not the place of pure potential from which everything generates? So you are a walking, amazing, life form and full of the energy of creation that penetrates all universes scientific community now has something like 11 at least 11 complex mathematical formulas for different dimensions and additional universes what we know here is just kind of a little piece of it. But we walk with the whole history in us. How is it that we walk with that history in us? The carbon in you came from stardust. The nitrogen in you came from stardust. You are actually 90% stardust. The other 10% is helium and hydrogen which came from the Big Bang. So Hi, aliens. How are you? What do the cells inside of you do? That hundred trillion, most of them are healthy, even if there's some kind of illness. With an illness, there's a very small percentage, even of cells that aren't healthy. A very small percentage can make us pretty miserable. But there is a resource within just the body itself, as well as the access to the energy around us, for healing. What do these cells do? They touch each other. We know there's a lot of water in the body, something like 75 to 85 percent. But indeed, inside, we're not just sort of squishy things with little round cells floating, unless we're a red blood cell. Most of the cells in you, like in your pancreas, in your liver, in your heart, in your muscles, touch each other. They're organized with exquisite beauty. And as they touch each other, they communicate to each other. They have little tiny tubules called nanotubes that go out from the cell or where the membranes of the cell touch each other. They send tiny packets of biochemical stuff that's made in one cell or the other which communicates to the cell next to it exactly what's going on in its neighborhood. So your body is integrated in the most marvelous way. We don't know this and didn't know this until tools and technology brought the information to us. The simple light microscope and magnifying lenses were discovered a long time ago The electron microscope was discovered and built in about 1945. It's a huge instrument, and it was the main instrument of the work that I did. It weighs a ton. It has a huge platform. It has a very high column. At the top of the column is a tungsten filament. It's pumped with um, (laughs) 100,000 volts of electricity which shoot electrons down through electromagnetic lenses, which are aligned through a sample that's in the middle of this microscope. And then on a little screen, you see the secrets of the inside of cells. And that's what grabbed me when I was a graduate student. The first time I looked inside of one of these things, I had to change departments. I was in zoology, I'd been a field biologist, I had to pick up a lot of math and physics. Oh, man, that was hard stuff. Where do you ever use matrix algebra when you're out of school? So I changed departments to biophysics and studied what was going on inside of cells. Every moment at that microscope was looking at the secrets inside of cells that we could not ascertain or see or perceive without the technology. I still read the journal Science, at least look at every week. It's a main journal in the United States. Uh, Nature is the other really important journal as is Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences. But what fascinates me in the years that I have been working outside of the field of cell biology, that things we used to argue about as graduate students are now being explained because technology has advanced. There's new microscopes, new biochemistry, new ways of apprehending the information. So as a community, as a species, we keep growing and understanding. The more we have, the more awesome it is. The more, I think, we expand into the wonder of the connection of science, what we know about here, and spirit, and how it can help us in our health. Are our cells unique? That was one of the big surprises for me, that a cell in you, a mouse, a guinea pig, a bug, a fish, are all the same. You put them under an electron microscope, and in very few rare types of cells will you be able to tell them apart. So as critters on this planet, that breathe and live, we're all one with everything else that's here. At that deepest level where life exists, where is the interface of energy and life? It's at a cellular level. I started being interested in this stuff in high school. I had a mentor, a wonderful high school biology teacher, who loaned me a little light microscope. And I took it to the attic of my home, and I went out and collected lots of little dishes of stinky pond water, took drops of that water, and looked at the tiny creatures swimming through the water. It was another one of those, wow, look what else is here besides us. Look what's here that we don't know about, that we can't see. How can I open myself to the mystery of life and to the mystery of what's not known. I did a science fair project with uh, my little critters that were crawling around in stinky pond water and won a scholarship to college. I was the first person in my family to actually go to college and uh, appreciated it very much, had wonderful mentors there, went on and got a master's in biology in North Carolina and then was in Pennsylvania working on my doctorate, when I fell in love with the electron microscope, changed careers. After that, um, I had a fellowship with the National Institutes of Health to study electron microscopy, and we worked with high-speed nanosecond pulsed lasers and their effect on pigment cells. They actually vaporize pigment. Pigment is the most amazing stuff in our bodies, in fish, in any um, organism that has it, melanin in our hair, which I've lost, oh dear. It's because of my daughter, when she was a teenager, she was really tough. (laughs) Melanin is a large carbon-based protein. It's huge and it folds in and on itself when it's made in the body. It's impervious. You can boil it in sulfuric acid and it doesn't break down. It's one of the most impervious molecules on our planet. You give it one nanosecond pulse, that's 10 to the minus ninth seconds, 10 to the minus ninth seconds pulse of this particular laser light and it vaporizes it. So we had a lab set up that was like Star Trek. (laughs) It was fabulous. We had this laser uh, shot here and around the room and uh, a target where we could align it because we're going to put our fishy there. The target was metal, it was aluminum, and it created a plasma of aluminum protons that danced in the middle of the room. Now, if you stuck a human finger in there, it would burn a hole clear through it. But in the fish, there was nothing that absorbed the light until it got deep in the skin to the melanin and it simply vaporized it. So we did some biophysics on how much energy was released, and we did some biology on what happened to the melanin and to other parts of the cell involved with moving melanin. When you see a fish, like a salmon, we were working with salmon, in a little stream where it's born, when it hatches from its egg, it's dark. By the time it reaches its ocean, it's bright and shiny. So we did a whole lot of work on those incredible pigment cells. Wouldn't it be fun if we had iridophores in humans so we had shiny stuff all over us? Would love it. That work then um, won me the honor of being an elected fellow in American Association for Advancement of Science. So I give you that background to say science was working for me. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I got to travel and yak, yak, yak about it. We were publishing four to five papers every year. I had a team working with me. It was hot. In the middle of this, one day I decide to clean house. And um, didn't do that a whole lot, you know. So there's a leaded glass window about yay big set in an oak frame that was a decorative piece on the mantle above my fireplace in Seattle. I'm vacuuming, I do not bump the mantle. All of a sudden, this thing vaults off and smacks me on the head. Really, for no apparent reason. Yeah. Ah, I get the chuckle out there. (laughs) That's good. I had never heard of near-death experiences. This was in the late 70s. This was before they were popular. We now know there's 13 million Americans Adults who had NDEs, there's also very interesting near-death experience studies in other countries which have a little bit different uh, visual experiences, which is interesting of itself. Anyway, bingo, all of a sudden, I feel my body collapsing on the floor. I'm going through a tunnel, a long, dark tunnel, drawn to this incredible light at the other end. My mother and grandmother had passed away, and I was very close to both of them and missed them. At this point in time, I did not believe in an afterlife. I was pretty much a bitter atheist. And all of a sudden, here's mama and grandma greeting me right at the entrance of the light. And they could communicate their love to me. I could feel it and sense it without, you know, a whole lot of words, it was amazing. I could have stayed there forever. And then, boom, all of a sudden, I'm in the presence of this gorgeous place with beautiful blue sky flowers and grass. No one else is there, but it wasn't lonely. It was a place of connection and oneness and beauty, and it was as if the colors were, uh, they were so brilliant but not harsh. I can't get words to describe them, but every time I tell this, I can see them again. Um, And it's one of those experiences where You just don't feel an urge to go anywhere or do anything else, the moment is enough. It also taught me to try and bring that here in my life. It's a good thing to be in the moment. And then I was, phew, transported to a place in the presence of a being of light from whom I felt the most incredible love, union, joy, uh, undescribable again. And without any discussion about coming back or not coming back, bang, I was back in my body, crumbled on the floor in my place. My head hurt, put my hand to my head. I had a huge gash, but the blood was dry all over the top of my head, which means I wasn't out a second or a minute. The best we've been able to figure is at least an hour, perhaps an hour and a half. Most head injuries of that type, people don't recover at all. You're dead. So I, I've always thought two things. One, if you're really hard headed, it takes a long time to get rewired. And secondly, obviously, house cleaning's really dangerous. Just don't do it. So here I am, stuck with this incredible experience. I'm still running the lab, loving the lab, have no desire to do anything else. I start reading, I pick up Ray Moody's book, Life After Life, the only one out at the time. I actually, well, I had a hematoma on the brain. I had to rest for a while, which was hard for me, having grown up climbing mountains and skiing and enjoying backpacking and all that stuff. Had to sit down for a while, put up with myself, yuck. But I was in a bookstore as I was recovering and Ray, Ray's book just virtually jumped off the shelf and I stood in the bookstore and read most of it and then bought it. But he had story after story of near-death experiencers. And one of the things I said in the lab to the people working with me there was, if it's real, it's repeatable. We're doing that experiment again to make sure it's accurate. And I went, I can't deny these stories one after another after another. These are repeatable. There are similar um, parameters for near-death stories, even though each one's a little bit different. So then I started talking to people, asking, searching. It took me six to seven years of doing that. And I'd started working with a healer and getting feedback from people that, oh my goodness, they could feel all this energy. They got better. I had a a little study in my home, and people were coming there for healing work. Uh, Before my near-death experience, I had wanted a child very much. I was told I was infertile. And after the NDE, all of a sudden, I went, Now my body's real regular with one of those things that happen to women. What's going on? And I discovered I was pregnant. And in that period of time after the NDE, Had a beautiful young daughter who is 34 now and just uh, a wonderful young woman, happily married. She was awful as a teenager. (laughs) You know, after the first service, there were little kids that come over here. There's the sweetest little girl in the little tutu dancing, and I just couldn't help but dance back at her. It was just so much fun. She was so into the music, it was great. Okay, back to my story. So I was searching, but I loved being a scientist. My identity was, I'm a scientist. And uh, that was a trap. Um, And I had gone with uh, my healing teacher to Mount Shasta, and on the way back, we stopped at a shrine in Portland, Oregon, dedicated to Mother Mary. I didn't grow up Catholic. But the guys went off somewhere, and I went up and knelt in front of the shrine, and I heard a woman's voice in my head say, You're called to heal. It had the level of impact on me that the near-death experience did, and I resigned my position the next day at the lab. It took a couple months to get people trained to take over, and I jumped into the abyss of doing healing work. I got an office, and a secretary couldn't imagine working without some kind of support system. <laughs> ah, dear. Um, And within just uh, less than two months, I was booked out, three, four months uh, ahead. It was not the near-death experience that created the healing gift. That is in each of us all the time. Every one of you have it. It is innate, it is native. What the near-death experience did for me was to get my attention and to listen to that larger picture to the stardust, to the universe, to the creator of the universe, and begin to ask, how can I serve? What can I do? And then the calling came. And so at first I learned from other healers. I went to every workshop there was, tried everything, and so I could do chakra clearing and I could do energy and I dumped my cell biology. But at some point a friend said, you should go to Bali because there's incredible healers there and they come into their work, they're accepted by their community because they've had a near-death experience. What is it about that? In all shamanic traditions, once you face death and learn there's nothing to fear, then you can work in a way with people. You can hear any story. You can be present with them in any part of their journey because you're not afraid. And it takes that kind of holding as a practitioner to be able to take somebody from where they are to the next step. So I went to Bali, and I went through a series of all kinds of things, but finally found this wonderful healer who then invited me to work with her. She'd never taken a Western student. She didn't require that I learn her um, rituals, but we worked underneath at the basis, at that deep foundation of who are we, Why are we here? What can we do to assist each other? What is the gift of healing? What does it look like for each of us? A little bit different for each one. One person's hands, it may be acupuncture, another massage, another psychotherapy, another allopathic medicine, another cell-level healing. It was an incredible experience of working for 10 years with her, going back and forth, and then noticing after I'd had the work with her and initiations and tests and tests and tests from her, that when I went to the healing room, everything changed. I could do more. I could work with people with different conditions that I couldn't touch before. But she brought up the cell piece because when she went deeply into trance to do her work, she would describe what she saw in people, And what she described were cells. I could hear it, I could perceive it. She had never seen a book on histology. She'd never heard of cells. But that's what she was seeing when she was drawn deeply to help others. So that's why she became such an incredible teacher for me. And my job then, the tape's coming loose on this thing. Mm, There we go. My job then got clearer and clearer. It was to bring science and spirit together. So that's what I bring here and offer you now after 30 years of being in practice as a healer, writing a couple books, doing a lot of talking. So here's the bottom line. First of all, your body is magnificent. There's nothing in it that's crap. It's magnificent. Enjoy the vessel that the creator has given you for your consciousness to ride around in. Your body's also an antenna for energy. All over you, you have structures in your body that pick up energy and run it as a toroid. So a toroid is a coil, if we look at it this way, in which energy runs all the way around inside. The whole skin of your body, every bit of collagen in your skin is a toroid. It's an antenna for energy. The DNA inside of your cells is an antenna for energy. The skeleton that underlies you that you can walk around with runs electrons up and down all the time. The microtubules that are in the projections of one nerve to another which allow you to feel, smell, touch, see, and perceive all are toroids, all run energy. So you are a walking, very sensitive antenna for what is out there for you. That's why some of you experience being very sensitive. Uh, In my book, Resonance, the newer one, there's a whole chapter called Sensitivity and Joy. I can't tell you how many people come to me and say, I'm too sensitive, teach me how to block it or prevent it. It's a gift, it's innate, it's wonderful for you. Your brain has 100 billion cells sitting inside of this thing up here. Each of those cells make many, many connections so that you have a hundred trillion connections your brain makes. Recently, I've been doing some electroencephalogram work, EEG work, testing the healing work when I'm, what's going on in my brain when I'm doing healing work. My brain runs a whole lot of very fast gamma, which is not a thinking part. It appears to be the connection with the divine, and it runs a lot of delta, which is the slowest wave in the brain, shown only for most people in deep sleep. Tibetan monks that Richard Davidson at University of Wisconsin has tested run similar patterns. So the practice of meditation, getting close to the divine in deep silence, supports the neurons of our brain to become, by skilled training, more than they are if we don't do it. It's also very interesting that what creates new neurons, your brain is not statically stuck with one set of neurons. From There's neuroplasticity and neurogenesis, new nerve cells in your brain. Particularly as we're aging, a lot of brain cells die. What replaces them apparently is the practice of meditation as well as exercise and fine motor skills. But meditation's on top of the list, isn't that interesting? So of all of these wonderful things going on inside of your skull, what we did was hook up electroencephalogram on myself, on my fabulous associate, Helen. We were tested in New York City. We get into synchrony as we're working as a duo doing healing work, and our brains go into a pattern called the awakened mind, the evolved mind, superconscious mind. What is happening when that's going on? Compassion arises, the skill of having spent time in connection is with us. But as compassion arises, there's a different feeling inside as we meet and touch another and send healing to them. And that reaches the cells. So there's a whole lot of interesting training that helps, some knowledge about what cells are like and what they do. But the work is not fine tuning like micro-manipulating one cell to another. It is deepening, however, whatever techniques or styles you use. Any of them can go a little bit deeper and reach uh, deeper in the body. I've learned over these years from my clients a number of things. I want to tell you a couple of stories. So there are four take-home messages from working these three decades with clients. One is, everything's possible, nothing's impossible. This is not a placebo effect because I've seen it work with animals that had no emotional attachment one way or another. I've worked with people who did not believe in this work at all, and I figured they wouldn't get anything, and many of them got the best effects of anybody. They were in my office because either their psychotherapist or their husband or wife sent them. And they were like, "Mm, and And then they get an amazing healing. And from that, I know that belief plays less of a role than grace. And the fourth thing is that distance doesn't affect the work. With the EEG hookup, we had someone a thousand miles away who was hooked up, baseline taken then the EEG guy calls me, go for it, Joyce, and I start sending healing to her. All of a sudden, her alpha waves, which represent well-being, go from an amplitude of 41 microvolts to 110. Her subjective experience is she has not felt that kind of peace and uh, well-being for almost two years recently did an EHS test where I was tested at my cabin at Mount Baker, just across the border, and someone was receiving healing in India, and they had incredible changes physiologically while the healing was going on. So let me tell you a couple of very specific stories. First one about nothing is impossible or everything's possible was a young man who had severe schizophrenia, he had tried committing suicide many times. His type of mental illness was uh, tactile hallucinations. He saw and heard a bunch of stuff, but he also had a feeling that a hand was moving him from place to place, and that hand had moved him in the middle of a busy highway. It's amazing he wasn't hit, but he would also tried other ways of committing suicide, and the upshot of that was he had ruined his digestive tract, and he had continual diarrhea. Now, he heard about me, and he came, and he said, "Can you help this digestive tract of mine. I said, let's work on it. So we did. We worked with it, and within a pretty short time, like a couple of sessions, all of that um, disruption started to settle down. And he could put on some weight. He was extremely lean. He felt much better. Diarrhea stopped, and so then he said, "Well, Crimey, if we fix that, why don't you fix my brain?" I went, "Okay, we'll try. Haven't done this before." I said, "Number one, you must agree with me that you will not stop your meds until your psychiatrist says it's okay. That you will work with us as a team." As your psych, he had meds that helped him, you know. So what his psychiatrist did, bless his heart, is he would very carefully work with Jeff so that as the tactile stuff lessened in our work, he'd lower the meds and change them slightly. We worked together probably every three weeks for at least a year. I'm very happy to tell you now that this young man has been completely off of all medication for over a year. When we started, he was living in... um, Government housing, he was on a government pension, he could not work. And now he has his own condo, his own car, he took a vacation to Italy, he works for Microsoft. Very brilliant young man. I had no idea that I could help him as much as this. So I'm extremely grateful for this kind of touch that comes through the work. Now let me tell you about Wolfie. Wolfie's a dog. And someone brought her dog to me who was, the doggie was less than a year old and had a hole in its heart between the two top chambers, the atria, that septum had not closed as it should have uh, during development. And the vet had told her that the dog would not live into maturity and would die and she was very attached to him. So at that time, I couldn't bring the dog into my office. I had to go sit in the back seat of the car with the dog to do the healing work. And of course, it's a gigantic dog. It weighs 80 pounds. It's part wolf, real wolf. And it's a one-person dog. I'm not the person. (laughs) And what kind of car does she have? A VW Bug. (laughs) Not a lot of space. So I reach up and put my hand on Wolfie's chest and say, hey, I'm here to help you, by the way. Don't bite me. And um, put my hand on his chest and I just start sending healing. And the focus here was bringing those cells on the periphery of that opening to divide and close it as if it had been done when it should have been done. Now that's, again, not micromanipulating them, but it was anchoring the work to the depth of the cells. And I worked probably, I don't know, maybe five minutes for Wolfie, and all of a sudden I hear this, and I looked at him and I went, okay, this session's over, goodbye, I'm out of here. (laughs) And then she'd bring Wolfie back, and I'd crawl in the back seat again. Eventually he'd wag his tail and kind of look at me a little less out of the side of his eye. But what was fascinating and what he taught me was he always designated when the session was over. It wasn't a big, like, I'm gonna bite your head off. It was a, "Er," and I go, okay, I'm listening, Wolfie, we're done. What I learned from him was to tune to the frequency of the dog, to resonate with what he needed, and to let him decide. It was amazing, and I could So it wasn't imposing something on him. It was working with him, working with the innate ability in each of us. And so that's what I bring and encourage practitioners to do. The work is not bounded by space. The work is skill and compassion, insight and intuition, science and spirit, comes from an unlimited source of oneness. And I encourage you to explore even deeper who you are and how you can assist yourself and others. Thank you.